0: Good morning. All right. Well, last week we were in Matthew and we looked at peacemakers. And today we're going to look at the ultimate peacemaking mission coming to culmination. Uh, Jesus's life is building towards something, and Palm Sunday is sort of the gateway to the beginning of this plan being completed. The beginning of the plan came long, long time ago, but as far as people are understanding Jesus' story, Palm Sunday is a declaration, and we're going to get into that and look at this a little closer today, but that declaration, Jesus knows what it's going to cost him. And so that's what we want to look at today. So I encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 12. Maybe you had a chance to read this between Wednesday and today. Uh, Maybe even you went the extra mile and tried to find some of the parallel versions of this in the Gospels and read the different accounts of Palm Sunday. But what we're going to look at is John's account of it. We're going to take a little pause for this Sunday, next Sunday, and the Sunday after Easter to, from our Matthew series to just focus in a little tighter on the Easter story uh, together. John chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. John chapter 12, starting at verse 12, we're going to go through 19. Uh, so would you look at that with me? The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's look at this to make sense of what's happening. The the question that keeps echoing in, in my mind is how many times have we heard some version of somebody saying he's here? Here he is. It was prophecies telling us what to look for, but then it was angels telling people he's here. Whether it was Mary, whether it was shepherds on a hillside, whether that was the wise men understanding the prophecies. There was from the day Jesus came into the world or was entered into the the womb of Mary, there have been these celebratory times. He's here, John the Baptist said it. The woman at the well said it. And now what we have is a crowd that understands it, and that's their message too. He's here. He's here. Now, Meg read this already, but I want to go back to Zechariah chapter 9 this Old Testament prophet and this prophecy. And I, I, want, I want to try to make sense of something here so that we can understand these people a little better. From a context standpoint, it's, it's, it's important for us to understand why they would get to the conclusion that they got to, to throw palm branches at this guy's feet. Now look at the evidence that has been mounting so far. The signs, the wonders, the teaching... Now, this all culminated very shortly before this, whenever He raised a man who was dead for three days, commanded him to come out of the grave, and Lazarus did just that. Came stumbling out of the grave in his grave clothes. The crowd that is gathering, they're gathering because this guy that's riding into town on a donkey, on a donkey's colt, which means a baby donkey that hadn't been ridden yet, They've heard stories of this guy. They have seen him and they have heard of him. And on top of that, if they had been around Jewish culture, or the synagogue or teaching for any amount of time in their lives, they would have known prophecy. And here's a specific one starting in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. I just want to read to you nine and ten. This is a Prophecy. It says rejoice greatly o daughter of Zion shout aloud o daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now listen, if you keep reading that, you keep reading that, they're describing someone that sounds a lot like a king they once loved. And his name was David and he was a conqueror. Go back even further than that. Joshua, conqueror, God's man, was was the, the guy that went into war and got the job done. So now we have the prophecy. All the prophecies are pointing to adding up. This Jesus is indeed our king. And they were looking for a king. They were looking for a king. Now, 12 verse 9, go back to John in 12 verse 9. It tells us that when the large crowd of the Jews learned about Jesus, that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, if everybody knew Lazarus was dead, now someone, if you get a rumor that somebody has died and then you go to their funeral and you see that person's body be put in a tomb and Four days pass. Three days pass. And all of a sudden, this guy is no longer in the grave. He's walking around. You can hear the story, and Jesus is the guy that did it. So it tells us plainly, the large crowd that gathered is gathering because of the story that they heard about Jesus, but they're also coming because they want the evidence to support it, and they want to see Lazarus. So the crowd comes, they see that evidence, they do the math, they realize this Jesus is legit who everyone is saying he is. And then they think about the prophecy, and then all of a sudden the same Jesus that they came to see, the Lazarus, that is the evidence that Jesus is who he says he is and did what everyone says he did and did what he even said he could do. Now that adds up with prophecy, and all of a sudden, this same Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey that's never been ridden before, and everything adds up, and they finally have their king, and they yell, Hosanna! Now, the Hebrew word, when you shave it all down, the Hebrew word Hosanna literally means save or save us, rescue us. (coughs) In Psalm 118, 25, and 26, listen to what it says here about the steadfast love of the Lord. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They're quoting scripture, they're quoting what they know, and they're doing the math. Everything that they have built their lives on is telling them that this is the guy. And they're hailing him as their king. And the Jews wanted a king. But church, this isn't the first time that God's people wanted a king. Actually, if you go back with me to 1 Samuel, I think it's going to be on the screen. But if you go back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8, What's happening here is that uh, Samuel is God's prophet. He is speaking on behalf of God. And the people are kind of tired of theocracy. They're kind of tired of it. And in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 8 in 1 Samuel, it says this, Then all the elders of Israel... just. Let that sink in. Not some, not a collection, not some representatives. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." You're incredibly old, and we hate your kids. So give us a king so we can stop this silliness. Why can't we just be like every other nation? Give us a king like all the other nations have. Now listen, I I went back that far on purpose, Because that never went away for God's people. And if we're being honest, some of it still remains. You're not what we want, Samuel. Your kids aren't what we want. We're tired of not looking like all the other surrounding nations. Give us a king. And that is the exact same sentiment that Jews sitting under the oppressive government of Rome are saying at this very moment, they're saying, give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations. We want to be like Rome in our conquering abilities, but we need someone powerful enough to take out Rome. So we want to be like them. We just don't want to be governed by them. We want our own king so that we can govern them. We want to be at the top of the pile. So palm branches are a Judean sign of royalty. When you laid a palm branch down, it was a sign of royalty. When they did finally break free from Rome, they got their first amount of coins printed, and those coins have palm branches on them as a signifier that they had broken free that they no longer had to give their allegiance to the oppressiveness that they once sat under. So when Jesus comes in and all the evidence supports that he's the king, he's the guy, they're saying we want a king and all the evidence supports that Jesus is the king. So when they laid down the palm branches, what they're saying is, finally, he's here. This is the king we want. Let that sink in. This is the king we want. When you say, this is the king we want, it comes riddled full of expectations. And even the disciples didn't completely understand what was happening. By the way, one of the disciples is writing this recollection of the moment. John is the one that's telling us this story. He was there. Saw the whole thing go down. Firsthand, eyewitness, that's what you're seeing right here. When we read this, we're reading a firsthand account of Palm Sunday. And I think sometimes we remove ourselves from that because the book's so old and we've been looking at it so often and Palm Sunday comes and goes and the kids will make a craft with green construction paper. And, you know, we, we do Palm Sunday in church all the time. And maybe we lose sight of that. But what we are reading is a firsthand historical account of what is happening. And that same firsthand account says we didn't have any idea what was happening. We were living out of some of the same expectations as people were. It took Jesus becoming glorified for our eyes to open to what this really meant. Even the disciples had expectations attached to Him being their king. And when He got arrested, they scattered because Jesus did not meet their expectations as king. He was the king they wanted until He wasn't. And this moment in verse 19 seals the deal for the Pharisees. This Jesus riding on a colt and the people giving their allegiance to Him and saying He's their King, it seals the deal for the Pharisees. We've seen them say it before, haven't we? We've seen them say it. Even in Matthew, when we're looking at it, they're plotting to try to figure out how they can kill Jesus. We've got to get rid of this guy. He's a real problem. And it culminates right here. This moment is when all of them are finally done with it. And now the scheming really begins. We've got to end it. From this moment, in less than six days, they will put this guy to death. They will execute him and they will have legal permission to do it. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You know what they're saying? Here's what Eugene Peterson says they're saying. Eugene Peterson says in his, in the message, says it's out of control, the world's in a stampede after him. And when the world you create for yourself gets a little bit out of control, you've got to do everything in your power to get it back. The Pharisees are in this moment saying, looking at each other and saying, see, everything we've done so far to stop this guy has done nothing. We have been utterly and totally ineffective in our methods. And look at this foolishness now. Everybody's going after him. We're standing here in our nice clothes, fully educated and ready for the task of religious leadership. And nobody's paying attention to us. They've all gone after this poor carpenter who has been a thorn in our flesh since the day he stepped into this town. We got to be done with it. The world's going after him and it stops now. That's their posture. Now, we, when we look at, at Palm Sunday, we look at the celebratory nature. We look at the disciples coming into town and they're waving palm branches and it's celebratory and it's fun and it's, it's this really cool moment. But what we lose sight of are all of the people whose idols are being threatened and they'll, do, they'll stop at nothing. They'll stop at nothing. This same prophecy that led these, the, the people to throw their palm branches down, the same prophecy that led them to the conclusion that this is our king, that they wanted, their conclusion was wrong. Their conclusion was right, but what they wanted was wrong. These are the same people that have been taught by the Pharisees that are standing there now on a death mission to, under, to find a way that they can justify murdering an innocent man, and they know he's innocent. That's why it takes so much scheming. And they're in the shadows, because that's where sin does its best work. And they're scheming behind the scenes, because that's where sin does its best work. And they're in the darkness and they're, they're pulling Judas aside and they're offering 30 pieces of silver and they're going to Caiaphas and they're convincing him and they get the big wig, they get Caiaphas on board and then they go to Herod and Herod's like, no, I don't want anything to do with this. You guys are ridiculous. And it's not because Herod's noble, it's because he's a coward. Then they go to Pilate, it's the same thing. They're doing all this under the cover of darkness and that's why Jesus was arrested at night, tried at night, and murdered in the morning because they did all their scheming in the dark. Listen, I'm just going to give you a quick tip here. If you're ever in church, in any church, and someone pulls you aside and says something to you that is only said to you and maybe a few people and doesn't sound a whole lot like Jesus, you know what they're doing? They're scheming in the dark. That's pharisaical. That's what they're doing to Jesus. That's a historical context of what's happening in this very moment. It's called the triumphal entry. And it is. It's triumphant. Jesus is crossing off all the boxes of prophecy. One by one by one. In systematic order, Jesus is crossing off all the boxes. He is the Messiah. There will be no denying it when all this story is written. He knows what's coming. Jesus riding into that city was a declaration of victory, and he knew what it would cost him. He knew he was the king, but he knew he was the king that the people needed not necessarily the one they wanted. So the prophecy says, look for these signs, and then the signs come. The disciples don't completely even understand what's happening. The Pharisees finally get their last button pushed. That's the historical context. That's what's happening here. They're making these declaration statements to Jesus. So here's my takeaways. Here's what I think I see in all of this that's important for us to wrestle with if we're going to have our hearts ready for the beauty of the resurrection, which we'll get to a week from today. Full disclosure, this week, I'm actually praying for you. Now, I say it that way because it makes sound like... When I say it that way, it may sound like I didn't do it last week, but I'm actually going to this week. <laughs> but I, I want to be full, fully transparent with you here what I'm praying for you this week. I'm praying that this week feels really heavy. Not because it's hard, not because your circumstances are hard, not because news is hard to read, but because sin is heavy and you don't have to carry it. Death is heavy, and you don't have to live under its promise anymore. But if we don't look at the heaviness of what this week cost Jesus, we will not gather in this place next Sunday with the joy and adulation in which it is merited. So I am praying for this week to be heavy. With that in mind... With that good news, cheery disposition, here's what I see. Here's some takeaways I see. Number one, wrong reading of Scripture always leads to wrong conclusions. Wrong reading of Scripture always leads to wrong conclusions. The people were out for blood. And what they were telling Jesus is, we want you to go spill some blood. We want you to be our king, and we want you to go spill some blood, and he will. And he does. But it's his, and it's not Rome's. And it's not this, this like, enemy. They wanted to see Rome's blood shed. They wanted to see leaders fall. They wanted to see people die. They wanted to see buildings torn down. That's what they wanted. And in our flesh, that's what we want. We want wins, we want victory. So we look at it in the way that we understand victory. But if we read Scripture properly, and it was all there to be seen. It was all there. But a wrong reading of Scripture always leads to wrong conclusions. The people wanted Rome's blood shed until Friday, when this guy disappointed them wasn't the king they thought he was going to be, had kept his mouth shut whenever he was sitting under, in front of a Roman governor, and you're not going to defend yourself? No, you're not the guy we thought you were last week. Yeah, you could kill him. These people are out for blood because their context was based on what they wanted more than what Scripture had told them for decades and centuries what they actually needed. To watch for their Messiah, yeah, of course. But Isaiah tells us plainly what's going to happen to him. We knew he was going to get put to death. We knew crown of thorns was going to get put on his head. We knew that whenever he got asked questions by governing authorities that he would stay silent. There's prophecy that tells us all of it. They were blinded by their own expectations. Those expectations were not in sync with God's Word. We have to be people of God's full contextual, full counsel of God, Genesis or Revelation word. We can't just read the parts we like. Again, that's why I'm glad we're studying through Ezekiel leading up to Easter. Because I myself, I wouldn't have said, you know what we should do? I mean, some of that stuff is graphic, right? If you've been reading through it, some of it's graphic, right? I wouldn't have picked it. But God in His infinite grace says, no, it's in my word for a reason. And then you read it and you study it and it makes sense contextually. And you find yourself thankful that you're giving the time and spending the time to understand God's word in its full context. You find life in it. Wrong reading of Scripture always leads to wrong conclusions. Second thing, the experts aren't always right. Sorry, I'll do the air quotes. The experts aren't always right. The Pharisees were the experts. They were the spiritual elite. You wanted to know what obedience to the law looked like? You watched those guys. You wanted to aspire to holiness? You watched those guys. You wanted to know what it meant to live a holy life? You watched those guys. They were the experts. Some of that self-proclaimed experts, by the way. But they were led by a pride that developed in them. They were no longer, at one point, I think Pharisees had noble intentions and they were biblical in their order, but they let pride get the best of them. And then they created rules and they created organization and they created an elite status amongst godly people. And they became the experts. Their equation became knowledge plus more education plus pride equals self-preservation. That was their math. Knowledge, more knowledge, more education, pride dabbled in. And what that equaled when it all shook out in the end was self-preservation. They created a world that didn't reflect God's world for them, And now they had to spend extra amounts of time and energy devoted to preserving the world they had created for themselves. And experts always want you to know that they're experts. Experts always want you to know that they're experts. So, where's Jesus in the equation? Notice he's not there. Knowledge plus education plus pride equals self preservation. There's no Jesus in that equation. The experts aren't always right. Jesus is. Number three Jesus is the king regardless of our expectations. Here's the thing about Jesus. I've heard it said that Jesus always exceeds our expectations, but I don't think I agree with that. I think Jesus completely blows our expectations out of the water. And we realize that we had no concept of how good He is. We had no concept of what He could walk us through We had no concept of what we could survive and thrive in, in the midst of His goodness. We had no concept for it. It wasn't that He exceeded our expectations. It's our expectations seem so so laughable when we actually meet Jesus. You remember when I said that, uh, I think it was last week, when I said that we, we, we come to Jesus almost like it's a negotiation. We come to Jesus with the attitude of like, all right, Jesus, here's how this, here's how this is going to go. Here's how this is going to go. I know I need to get to heaven. I get it. You did the work. Heavy lifting. Thank you. But uh, here's how this is going to go. You're going to give me that. You're going to give me salvation. And in turn... I'm going to clean up my language. I'll tell you what, I'll stop watching R-rated movies. Um, I'll go to church most of the time. I'll memorize some verses, you know, the big ones, John three sixteen, 16, Romans 3, 23. I'll, I'll memorize the big ones. I'll tell you what, God, if you want me to, I'll even like find a way to serve in the church. And then other than that, you're going to leave me alone. You're going to give me what I want because I'm giving you some of what you say you want. And then I'm going to get to go to heaven. No more communication. That's the deal. Sign it and we'll get out of here. Now, that sounds a little trite, but that's how we come to God sometimes. We come before a holy God like we're calling the shots. How arrogant are we, we, myself included? I don't come to God asking Him for something, I come to God telling Him what He needs to do for me. And then when I don't get it, unmet expectations mean it's either God's fault or somebody that represents God's fault it surely can't be mine. So regardless of our expectations, Jesus is the king. He crossed all the boxes in prophecy. He rides into town. People claim him as their king. They turn their backs on him, including his own followers. As far as we know, there are like three people left at the foot of the cross that claim to be followers of Jesus on the day he he, he breathed his last earthly breath here. The rest of them scattered. They were terrified. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He doesn't just raise some other dude from the dead. A dead, cold, three-day dead body is laying on a stone tablet tucked inside of a cave wrapped in cloth and sealed with a giant stone. They have done everything in their power to make sure that it is well aware to the masses that this guy is dead. He wasn't the king you thought he was. And Satan laughs with delight. For a short amount of time, he feels like he won. He's drinking champagne. He's spraying it on his buddies. He won, man. And Jesus doesn't call Lazarus out of the tomb this time. Jesus, by the power of God, breathes life back into those lungs, shatters the stone, walks out of that grave, and for 40 days walks amongst his people saying, See, I told you exactly who I was. It's not a, I told you so. He doesn't go up to Pilate and go, He just lives in victory. He is exactly who he claimed to be. And his posture says, I have done everything that I could possibly do to reveal to you the Father's goodness, the Father's love for you, and the royalty of who I am. And the rest of your life, you're going to have people tell you that it's not true. You're going to you're gonna have to make this decision for yourself. You're going to have to look at the evidence. And Jesus does something that no other entity has ever done in the history of royalty ever before. A, He raises Himself from the dead. But He did it while we were still His enemy. We were clearly lined up against Him. And He still died for us. He's still our king. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and get ready as we get ready to close out this last song. Now, we're not done yet, so I don't want you to like do that thing where everyone slams their Bibles shuts, and gets their pens and thinks about where you're going to lunch. We're not quite done yet. But Jesus did something remarkable. He met us in our sin Jesus did exactly what the people thought he would do. He went to war. but He didn't go to war against Rome because that was a puny enemy compared to the real one. The real enemy was sin and death. So that's what he went to war against. The people cried out for blood. And Jesus did exactly what they wanted him to do. He spilled blood, but he didn't go take out someone in a government position. He spilled his own blood. And he wanted what God wanted more than anything else. He wanted to obey the Father more than anything else. And those were Jesus' expectations. I'm going to do whatever it is that the Father tells me is best. And the question I, that haunts me is the question I want to ask this morning. Is it Do we want what we want or do we want what He wants? Do we want what we want and we will grasp and do and claw and, and hurt whatever we have to do to get what we want? Or we humbly submit to a good, good king and want what he wants? Because your king is worthy He wants for you what is best. He gave His life so you and I could have what's best. To claim royalty for ourselves, to become equal heirs to God. That the royal status that Jesus has gets assigned to us as adopted sons and daughters of the royal God that Jesus sat down and and wept and cried and said, God, if there's no other way, then I'll do it. Not my will, but Yours be done because I want what you want. And is that our posture? Is our posture leading in to Holy Week, the week where we can, in exponential fashion, focus our time and energy on the turning point of human history and the turning point of our own lives, the the moment that Jesus conquered sin and death on our behalf. He didn't need to do it for Him. He already had access to God. He was already perfect. He didn't need to do it for Him. If He was a selfish ruler like the rest of us would be, He would have just went back to the Father and said, let them be them. But He didn't. He knew what the Father wanted. And He said, I want what You want, God. Your will, not mine. And is that our posture as we enter into a week where we celebrate the turning point of our story? While you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He did that because He looked at the Father and said, this isn't about what I want about what you want not my will but your will father thank you for this amazing truth the reality that you are a king that can be trusted a king that quite honestly is selfless your will be done My God and Father, as in heaven, so on earth my heart is drawn to self-exalting. Help me seek your kingdom first. God, as we sing together, as we end our time together, may you weigh upon us deeply the weight of our sin and then allow us this week to walk with you and feel the freedom of not having to live in it anymore. May you crush us with the reality of what our salvation cost you and then restore us with the joy of our salvation that brings us into right relationship with the Holy God who is our King, who we can pledge our full and unadulterated allegiance to. Not our will, but yours. In your name we pray these things, Father. Amen. This song may not be completely familiar to you, so I just encourage you to sit and and listen, and when it's time to stand, we'll stand and sing together.